Hello everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Sign Up for the Future, a podcast series designed to inform students and young professionals about the many career pathways within the data sciences field. My name is Devika and I'm your host today. As the whole world is currently facing the COVID-19 pandemic, it is evident that data scientists are at the forefront of communication, bringing information on important statistics and disease outcomes to the scientific community as well as to the general public. Through our podcast episodes, we aim to bring in data science professionals such as epidemiologists, research scientists and innovators, biostatisticians, science communicators and policymakers to talk about their careers which has certainly had a huge impact in fighting the pandemic. This show is produced by Careers Infinite and sponsored by the Rising Youth Grant administered by Taking IT Global, the Government of Canada and Canada Service Corps. Today, we are thrilled to have Dr. Reva Dionandan joining us. Dr. Dionandan is an epidemiologist and associate professor from University of Ottawa. I'm sure he's a familiar face in all households. You would have caught him on his many appearances on CBC news shows or read some of his articles on the Star or the Huffington Post. Or if you're a podcast enthusiast, you might follow his science education podcast Science Monkey. My personal favorite have been his appearances on CBC news speaking about maintaining safety measures as kids are returning back to school and the importance of science communication and fluency especially in the political arena when you're talking about public health. Dr. Dionandan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Dionandan, as I did my research for this podcast, I realized that you wear many hats. You are a scientist and associate professor in the traditional sense, but you are also a scientist who utilizes the full range of digital media to get a lot of information out to the community. I'm going to take a line from an interview you did on World Teachers Day. What does a typical epidemiologist do? And I also like to follow that up by asking, what do epidemiologists have to do with data science? Okay, I'm I'm really glad to answer that question. You know, I wrote a book many years ago called Nothing to Do with Skin: The Fundamentals of Epidemiology because for the longest time people thought epidemiology was the thing, not epidemiology, and thought we were dermatologists. We studied skin. We're skin doctors. No, it's nothing to do with skin. Epidemiology, the word, root word is epidemic, hence the relevance right now for the COVID pandemic. But the origins of our science go back to the Victorian era when a man named John Snow, not the guy from Game of Thrones, a scientist named John Snow, was investigating the cholera epidemic in London. And back then we didn't know what caused infectious diseases. We didn't know about germs and viruses and bacteria. Back then we thought that diseases came from the miasma, this magical gas that came out of the swamp that uh, came into our houses at nighttime. But what John Snow did that was so revolutionary was that he counted the number of cases in various neighborhoods and did some math and figured out that most of the cases were serviced by a certain water pumping station, the Broad Street pump. And from that observation he concluded that not only is cholera waterborne, it can be controlled probably by controlling that water pump. So if you go to London now, you can go to the Broad Street pump, the site of the origins of epidemiology. And uh, it was miraculous. He was able to stop the epidemic, or at least you know, a fairly important part of it, by doing a thing, by doing a public health intervention based solely on mathematics. So on that day, epidemiology was born. And I think of epidemiology as medicine 
with math. It's not medicine by touching people or dealing with icky stuff like blood and guts and things like that. I, I never touch a patient. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a PhD. Epidemiologists work at the population level, not at the individual level for the most part. So having said that, what is epidemiology? The definition is, it's the study of the determinants of health. What are the determinants of health? Yes, diseases determine health, but poverty also determines health. Gender determines health. Race determines health. What else? Where you live determines health. Your obesity determines What you eat determines health. So if you're able to measure these things and calibrate them and compare them, then you can figure out where the policy levers are in society to make people healthier. So that's, uh, you know, in a broad sense what epidemiologists do. On a day-to-day -day basis, it's, it's a little more wide because there are public health epidemiologists, there are drug company epidemiologists, there are cancer epidemiologists, there are generalists like me. You know, so uh, for the most part, what we do is we use statistics and some mathematics, a lot of common sense, a lot of philosophy, actually, and some limited knowledge of medicine. I say limited because a lot of us don't have a medical background. And we use that information and we combine it in a, a meaningful and sensitive way to find some direction forward to make to make health better. The example I'll give you before I get to the next question is we didn't know that lung that smoking caused lung cancer. We really suspected it for a long time, but we couldn't prove it. You know, and so for the longest time, uh, tobacco manufacturers were getting away with this, and they say, well, prove it. Nobody can prove to us that smoking causes lung cancer. Epidemiologists found a way to prove it, or to at least show very strong uh, suspicion that there is a link. So what we are are experts in causal influence and in disentangling bias in addition to measurement and health and statistics. So I had a fun question to ask over here. You mentioned your work involves statistics and some mathematics. Yeah. When did you take your first statistics course and was it love or hate at first sight? Excellent question. And the answer is going to shock you. I teach statistics now. I think I'm a very good statistics teacher. And I actually advise on statistics. I consult to governments and companies on statistics. But I didn't take my first statistics class until my PhD program, my fourth degree, right? And I remember the day that I took my first stats class, and I didn't understand what was going on. And I thought, this is ridiculous. This makes no sense. This is, is this going to be my life, this thing that I don't understand? Uh, and that teacher became a very good friend of mine. I was the best friend at his wedding years later, so we became pretty close. But that convinced me that I need to understand this well enough that I can teach it to others. Now, most people get their first exposure to statistics either in high school or their first or second year of university, which is what I recommend everyone to do, actually, is get as much statistics under your belt in your undergrad years. But for me, it was definitely hate. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I hated it. What matters is I stuck with it and realized this is not that difficult. And even if it is difficult, when you progress along the career path, you can get to the point where you don't have to do it yourself. I hire statisticians now to do the actual grunt work. I just have to have sufficient expertise to know what they're telling me. In your experience, what type of skills should an undergrad be focusing in compared to somebody who's a grad student and just starting out? Interesting question. It comes down to maturity and how much stuff you have under your belt already and how ready you are to learn. I think at the undergraduate level, 
people are want to know facts. They want to know techniques. They want to acquire tools. In fact, we're fond of, of stratifying the four years of undergraduate by certain learning outcomes. So, for example, the first year, we, we think people should be able to regurgitate what we tell them. The second year, they should be able to solve problems with what we gave them. Then the third year, they should be able to synthesize new information. And the fourth year, they should be able to you know, question the theory and to put forth new theory. That's sort of an advanced, uh, uh, stratified method of, of self-development. At the undergraduate level for data science and epidemiology, I think it's really important for people to gain the confidence in mastering the tools. And the tools are, for the most part, statistics, some computer science, if you have that ability, but it's not mandatory, increasingly communication. Now, I can't stress this enough. I've been at the hiring level for companies, for NGOs, for big government at every level. And the thing that we have the hardest time finding skills-wise isn't the technical stuff. Most people can you know, learn to do stats, learn to program, learn to do some econometric analysis, whatever. The hard part is getting that married to communication skills. Can you speak well? Can you write well? That's the most important thing. Can you write well? If you can't write well, can you write adequately well? And can you write adequately well for a variety of audiences, not just the scientific audience, but the lay audience, the media audience, the funder audience, the governmental audience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, at the undergraduate level, you should acquire these hard skills, like statistics and like writing. When you get to the graduate level, I think it's important to ask yourself philosophical questions. If you can ask these questions earlier, that's even better. The philosophical questions include things like, what is the paradigm of research that I'm undertaking? That's a huge word. What does that mean? A paradigm is a set of beliefs and assumptions about the nature of reality. We're getting pretty deep here now. But here's an example. There is an objective paradigm and a subjective paradigm. A subjective paradigm says, I can't measure something without affecting that thing. Maybe you learn a little bit about this in quantum physics, right? Anytime I endeavor to study a thing, I'm affecting it. Therefore, no true objectivity is possible. An objective or positivist paradigm, which is where epidemiology sits actually, says that objective truth exists and here are the tools to sample objective truth. So at the graduate level, disentangling those paradigms is important because that allows you to understand the implications of what you do. But for the people listening to this podcast, that sounds a little, you know, maybe intimidating, a little scary. Don't worry about it. You'll get there. The important thing is you start out by acquiring skills and that the philosophy evolve naturally layered on top of those skills. A few people are scared that if they're not mathematically versatile, they might not be able to get into this field. What are your suggestions for them? In my field in epidemiology, it's amazing the diversity of people that you find. Personally, for me, I, I have degrees in physics and neuroscience and, and teaching before I took up epidemiology. So my math background was pretty heavy, but I had zero stats background. My colleagues had, had much less math background than me, and some were terrified of mathematics. Some came out of you know, biology or physiotherapy or even you know, softer skills. Like um, When I say softer, I mean you know, not lesser. Softer, when we talk about academia, talks about uh, where you are on that continuum between hard mathematics and not hard mathematics. So softer skills, things like uh, history or geography. You know? So whatever you need to know, we will teach you in terms of mathematics. You just need to be unafraid and have you know, a high school level understanding of things. More importantly, 
when you enter the work world, nobody works alone anymore. Everybody works in teams. I can't think of a single profession that uh, that's strictly a solo act anymore. Everything's a teams-based. So, so, and the reason that we work in teams is different people augment my deficiencies. I mentioned earlier, I'm not very good in statistics. I hire statisticians. I'm not very good at computer programming. I hire programmers, right? Or in a, in a research team, somebody else would be in charge of understanding the biology of the thing we're looking at. I'm in charge of understanding the research design. Somebody else would be in charge of doing the heavy statistics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's important to have some depth in a few things, but it's unreasonable to expect everyone to be very good at everything. So if math isn't your thing and this still interests you as a career path, that's okay. Focus on being very good at the other things that define this career. So I'm going to come back to career opportunities because I feel like you opened up a lot of them <laughs> and I'm going to shift the conversation to the COVID-19 pandemic. So with COVID-19, I'm learning that data science is playing a huge role in disease surveillance and progression. And when we spoke earlier, you spoke a little bit about smart city planning. But I'm curious to know, are people able to see the connection of data science to disease monitoring and therefore to epidemiology? It's a really good question. Uh, increasingly, the overlap between the worlds of infectious disease epidemiology and disease surveillance and data science are colliding. They're more than colliding, they're overlapping substantially. So what's the difference between these, these worlds, right? So in the epidemiology world, we are experts in study design and measurement in the art of causal influence, figuring out that this actually causes that. In philosophy, as I mentioned already, and in determining bias, an example of a bias is some people say we're seeing more cases because we're testing more, therefore we find more cases. That's called a detection bias. And by the way, the answer is no, we're not seeing more cases because we're testing more. The cases are real. And there are ways we disentangle that fact. So an epidemiologist figures that out. The data scientist, on the other hand, has skills in computer programming, data visualization, informatics, higher dimension quantitative methods, which is you know more advanced ways of doing things but don't have the same skills in study design, measurement, and, and causality, and so forth. So increasingly, as these two populations acquire each other's skills, they become a little bit uh, interchangeable. And they converge around some areas. We converge around statistics. Both populations are good in statistics. Both are good at data management. right? Both are good at health information systems and disease surveillance. And this is where we come to here. Here's an example of the way that data science and big data have been pretty good at disease surveillance and very innovative. Maybe some of you have heard of Google Flu Trends. I don't know if you have, right? Google Flu Trends was an attempt by Google a few years ago to do flu surveillance. Let me back up and talk about surveillance. Surveillance in epidemiology and public health isn't big brother with a camera on you watching your every every move, right? Like, like the Google Assistant watches me every day. But that's not what we're talking about with the disease surveillance. With disease surveillance, we're talking about keeping an eye out for trends in certain diseases. And if you don't know, all around the world, we have all kinds of surveillance programs for diseases. And in, in my country, in Canada here, we have you know scores of disease surveillance programs for tuberculosis, suicide, diabetes, everything. The U.S. has hundreds of surveillance programs. So Flu Watch is a, a big surveillance program we have here to keep track of the cases of flu, and we get that from 
people showing up with flu symptoms in hospitals and, and in their doctor's offices. What Google tried to do was look at people entering symptoms of the flu into the Google search window and using their AI, their artificial intelligence, to figure out if, if in fact, they were talking about the flu. If they say cough, was cough um, sometimes followed up with mucus? And was it followed up then with fever or, or things like that? And, and, and therefore figuring out how commonly they think people were looking up their own symptoms that were probably the flu. And the first couple of years they did this, they found an amazing coincidental trend line. And when I say coincidence, I don't mean it was a coincidence. I mean the lines were overlapping. The, uh, a coincidental trend line with the actual epidemiological flu trends, which means that Google was able to tell us where the flu was without measuring the flu, simply by looking at human behavior online. That's an amazing thing. That's a data science thing. Now, the problem is that, as I mentioned, epidemiologists are good at disentangling causal inference, and data science is not. So what was happening eventually, the second or third year this was in effect, was that people um, were starting to look up flu symptoms having nothing to do with the flu. For example, some famous person got the flu. Maybe it was a Kim Kardashian or somebody. And suddenly people were Googling her name and finding out, oh, does she have the fever and things like that? And suddenly searches for this person were being mislabeled as flu symptoms. So it was giving us false information. Right? So that's my way of saying that data science and AI and big data can be used very powerfully to do disease surveillance, but it has a flaw, and that flaw is it doesn't have that human leadership, that human oversight of the epidemiologists to disentangle the false signal. I feel the system has to continuously learn whether the person is asking about, should I go to the doctor or something like that. That's right. And so with, you know, with big data, there's always a learning data set, an application dating set. But, but with modeling in general, one of the big flaws in modeling is the better, the more attuned the model is to its training data, almost the less useful it is for real life. And the example I'll give is, there's an assignment I give to my statistics students. I have them predict what their, um, their final exam mark will be based upon their midterm exam mark. Right? And they use training data from the previous year. So we use you know, the midterm uh, exam from the previous year and the final exam from the previous year and see what the relationship was. It's possible to build a mathematical model so precise that you precisely predict what last year's class would do. But the more precisely you match it to last year's class, the less relevant it is for this year's class. Have you found that they perform better after seeing those results? <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> no, that, that probably has more, more to do with... Uh, the laziness of my students than anything else. <laughs> but to answer your question, I mean, what is the role of, of data science in disease surveillance? It's increasing. So um, the more threat we have of global pandemics, and the threat is increasing every day, the more we're going to rely upon automated systems to get us that information. We can't be sending teams of hundreds of epidemiologists around the world all the time looking for things. We have to look at embedded data, like administrative data, like the airline data, or um, health insurance data, or credit card data, or mobile phone data, all these things combined to see if we can tease out a signal that tells us a disease is happening over there. There's another project looking at Twitter to see if it can measure depression and therefore predict like suicide attempts. And this was tried, I think, in Ireland 
looking at people tweeting about, oh, I'm really tired today or I'm depressed. And, and it was pretty good. It was able to, you know, predict where the spikes in suicide ideation would occur in certain neighborhoods, right? We can deploy our resources accordingly that way. So that's, that's the connection between data science and disease surveillance. It's, it's a thorough and exciting connection, and it's only going to get deeper as the years roll on, you know, because the technology is getting better. Could you give me an example of how it is being adopted real-time in health information systems in a particular country? Do you have any examples to share? Ooh, interesting. Okay, so health information systems, if you don't know, are these networks uh, or a platform used for a variety of purposes. Most commonly, it's used to track patients when they go from you know clinic to clinic, doctor to doctor. It's, um, so I was uh, involved in setting up one in the nation of Guyana, where I was born actually, but I do consulting work there as well. And also I consulted in Brazil. And the one in Guyana was made because we have uh, patients in one region who are going to a local clinic and then they're traveling to the city and going to the hospital there and so forth. And we didn't know if it was the same patient because there's no networking system. So we built one there. So it can track patients, but it can also track the billing of doctors to figure out, you know, how much are doctor is the one doctor doing all the billing. It can figure out if outbreaks are happening because, hey, suddenly the system is saying that um, there are X cases of tuberculosis in this part of the country. It can also uh, evaluate the system so uh, funders like the, the World Bank and WHO is paying uh, for this country to do a variety of things. The system can now produce these indicator measurements, like this is the number of healthcare workers per patient. This is the amount of money spent on this, whatever it might be. So that's a, a really important system to, to unroll. And the, the computer scientists I work with were fantastic. They knew about um, you know, how to make the linkages. And By the way, that's a big part of this, data linkages, taking information from one place and learning to make it speak to information to another place. That's something that I can't do, but the data science people can do. Right? But what they couldn't do is understand what the indicators I was looking for were. Like I'm looking for disease incidents. I'm looking for um, you know, uh, demographic breakdowns. I'm looking for the serial intervals, which is the, the time between the symptoms arriving in, in, in one person and the system, system, system symptoms excuse me, arising in the person they infect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was critical. And health information systems are going to get deeper and more complicated and more relevant, especially as countries become wealthier and more able to, to afford them. Right? So this is a, a very important place to invest your career if you have that capacity. Um, and in Canada, um, because wealthier countries in general don't have that level of system because we have layers of infrastructure to overcome. If you're a poor country going right from no technology to 21st century technology, you have the option of laying down the best network possible. But wealthier countries have to rip up the old network first. So it's complicated. What would your advice be, especially for a student? You explained about a lot of career options uh, given the number of people who are involved in projects like these. So give me an example, like if there's a person who has a background in life sciences and a person who has a background in computer science, what would be their career option if they were thinking of dabbling in data science? First of all, no doors are closed. Just because you have a degree in life science doesn't mean you got to stay in life science. And just because you have a degree in computer science doesn't mean you got to stay there. The, the percentage of people who actually work in the thing they got the degree in is actually quite small. 
Because the thing you got your degree in trains your mind. The skills you have doesn't have to be the thing that you make your living on. It's nice if it is, but it doesn't have to be. So, for example, most physicists are employed by banks doing financial work. Um, cellists uh, make great computer programmers. Musicians make great computer programmers. You know? uh, biochemists make great uh, data, data scientists because they're used to dealing with strange data all the time. Having said that, let's, let's break down the kinds of jobs you get in a data, data science paradigm. I'm curious to know about the musician's part. <laughs> well, musicians, because they understand patterns, right? So, and, and a big part of computer programming is, you know, laying down the patterns and cycles and iterations and, you know, recurring uh, trends and so forth. So if I can talk about like data analysts versus data scientists versus data engineers, these are important distinctions that maybe people don't understand. So a data analyst is pretty much an entry-level position, which is great, and they look at the data to answer a question. And it doesn't have to be in healthcare, it can be in any sector. It can be in for Walmart or Costco, you know, or Major League Baseball, whatever it might be. It's they have data, and that data could be the batting average and the, the year of birth of the players, or it could be the, the customer profile of, of the Costco, whatever it might be. So that data, can you use that data to answer a question like, what is our best-selling product? You know, when does it sell best? What is our least-selling product? That's data analysis. That's powerful stuff. I feel like sales and marketing I, came into this now. <laughs> well, this is a big part. I mean, let's be honest here. Most career options are in the private sector. They're not in the public sector. Right? So I think students should keep their options open. If you want to do epidemiology, that's fantastic. But epidemiologists do exist in the private sector as well. Uh, and, and their tools are used to optimize profit, ultimately, you know, in the private sector. A data scientist, um, rather than an analyst, is looking to build models to predict the future. I mentioned you know, predicting my students' final exam mark based upon the midterm. It's kind of like that. So... Uh, a data scientist has to know more about the statistics and the advanced methods in order to make those models and to disentangle the biases and some of the errors they may find. And a data engineer is more of a nuts and bolts person. This person builds the infrastructure. They do the programming. They build the health information system, the programming for it. So depending upon where you want to um, commit your skills, these levels are important. An epidemiologist is most, most akin to the first two. Like a simple epidemiologist would just you know, analyze some data and answer some questions. Epidemiologists are really good at the, the data scientist portion, which is, again, predicting the future, using models to predict the future. Right now in the COVID world, uh, every now and then, regardless of where you live, someone is building a disease model, an infectious disease model, to figure out where is the disease going, where are we going to be in a few weeks, depending on what people do. If everybody wears masks, What's the curve going to look like? If we close the schools, what's the curve going to look like? So that's, that's predicting the future. And you, you need some math for that, but you also need to understand the nature of society. You know, what's the likelihood people are going to wear masks? What are the factors that affect transmission? Yeah, masks are important, but also people wanting to socialize is important. You know, if you don't understand how people interact, you won't understand epidemiology. So it's not just about math and computer science. It's understanding people and psychology as well. In the corporate world, these skills are useful for optimizing production and customer acquisition and figuring out the trajectory of the organization, right? Also great for machine learning. So I have a graduate student 
who's using machine learning. If you don't know what that is, I'm going to explain it. Machine learning is when you teach the machine how to do something and teach it how to teach itself how to do something. So this one student is doing work on um, cells from an umbilical cord to, you know, to, to figure out uh, which of these cells are useful for a future experiment. And it's a lot of work to do it manually. You have to look through the microscope and see just the right cell types and you extract them and you cultivate them in the future. And she thought, well, can't we teach a machine to do this? And you have to you know, figure out how to teach a machine to identify these cells. And she did. You know, so that's a, a useful application of data science in furthering some medical research. So if I break it down, they have to have biology experience and they have to have a little bit of computer science to break down each of the points into some variables so that the computer can pick it up and then train it again and again and again. You know, that is true. But I will tell you, every one of those things we can teach you. What we can't teach you is, are you a creative thinker? Are you a team player? Are you a good communicator? Are you open-minded? Are you a good learner? If you, if you acquire these attributes yourself, everything else is almost secondary. It's never too late to learn a skill, but it is incumbent upon you to learn how to learn a skill. Right? So one of the things you should always be focusing on is knowing how to learn and being open-minded. So always be reading books, always be listening to lectures, always be considering what's, what's incorrect. You know, maybe the paradigm has shifted. So the, of the things you listed, the hardest part is probably the computer science part because that changes so often. You know, but my student who's doing this has zero computer science background, zero, but you have to teach yourself. You know, so whatever you come with, that's great. Just be open-minded enough to, you know, to expand your skill set. Because, as I said, my background before I became an epidemiologist I had degrees in physics and neuroscience, but I had no statistics and no sense of epidemiology or population health. So I learned from the ground up at the PhD level. So it's entirely possible to do these things. So no shortage of applications, and you really need to learn more of the transferable skills. Oh, yes, that's a great way of putting it, transferable skills. So there's another bit of advice I give to students all the time when looking to make themselves amenable to an employer is try to be a T-shaped person, a shape like a capital T. What does that mean? If you are an I-shaped person, it means we can slot you into a hole. Maybe you've got a, a, a really good skill set. Maybe you're a good statistician. Great, we need a statistician over here, we put you in that hole. But, you know, no organization um, works that way anymore. We need a statistician and we need someone to help out with, you know, the public communication or with the budgeting or the strategic planning, do you have, you know, some ability to do these things as well? If you do, then suddenly, you know, you're T-shaped. You've got that long vertical part that slips into that hole, but you've got the horizontal part that covers other people's holes, which sounds dirty. I know it's not meant that way. It's meant to say, I, you know, I can help out with these other endeavors as well. So if you have great depth in one or two areas, but you've got a little bit of competency in other things, that makes you a very valuable person to have on the organization. And a lot of hirers or employers look for that kind of profile. Dr. Dionandan, that was very well put. So be a T-shaped person and be open to all experiences and be willing to learn. But if I could offer one more piece of advice, if there's time. It never hurts to be generous. So this is not a zero-sum game where if that person wins, I lose. 
I like to think if, if, if everyone else wins, I'm winning as well. So I help out people when I can. I help out my friends when I can. If I see a job ad that you know I don't want, I make sure I put it on social media so somebody else can have it. So whatever, whatever I put out there will come back to me in some capacity. It's not a, a karma thing necessarily. It's just I think people in general would appreciate being in a community. Because everyone is looking to augment their organization's capacity. And so if they see you're out there being generous and being social and being societal and being you know, community-minded and network-minded, that is an attribute that they want to have on their team as well. Yeah? So selfishness is not a virtue. Dr. Dionandan, that was wonderful. And you summarized it very well. I'm going to end it off by saying you need to be a T-shaped person. <laughs> Dr. Dionandan, it was an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Be sure to tune in to our next podcast episode to continue to learn about data science careers. Check out www.careersinfinite.com to find links to all the episodes of this podcast series, Sign Up for the Future. You can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. A big thank you to our sponsors, Taking IT Global, the Government of Canada, and Canada Service Corps for supporting our project. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>